0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today will be our last Econ episode for a while. We've had a long series. Some of you will cry. Some of you will cheer. Others will just be happy that we're going to keep making podcasts and you get to hear our voice. Before we get started, we would be remiss not to mention Podcastnic, which is a subgroup of podcasts that are all part of the agora podcast network put together by the inimitable and famous at this point travis j dow as well as his buddy pete and podcast nick if you go to podcastnick.com, which is spelled kind of like sputnik podcast ni you can get all sorts of cool podcasts including the history of germany the secret cabinet uh which is based in britain the history of alchemy Bohemian, which is about bohemia americana which if you're a german listener it's the united states for you and all sorts of other stuff you can buy some swag it's a really good time i'm a big fan of history of alchemy you should be too
2: additionally if you listen to our i think it was our most recent episode now We had a conversation with two gentlemen from OnlineGreatBooks.com. And if you don't know what OnlineGreatBooks.com is, it's basically a website where you get to go and join a reading group that is guided by sort of like a, a professional philosopher, essentially, that walks you through all the great works of Plato and Machiavelli and Aristotle and, I don't know, Schopenhauer and Kant and all of these things. So if these are books that you feel like you have wanted to read at one point in your life, but just feel like it's been sort of a daunting task to take on yourself, go check out OnlineGreatBooks.com and be sure to go to the Reconsider page where we will get a small bump for referring people, which helps us keep going. That is OnlineGreatBooks.com
1: slash R-E-C, OnlineGreatBooks.com slash R-E-C. And more importantly, you get a 25% discount if you go through our page. So it's win-win, guys. Go do it. It's a ton of fun. If you have heard Monty Python's Philosopher's Drinking Song, all of them, all of them in that song are going to be part of your reading experience. So go enjoy. And speaking of us getting a bump, hey, man, it's like our 60th episode or something. I've lost count. Probably so have you. If you've been listening and enjoying, wow, you've got a lot of free stuff. What would be great for us, and something that will help us keep going into the future and might even, God forbid, help me do this full-time so I can get you more content more often, would be giving us some money. You can go to patreon.com slash reconsider and give us money there. Our standard model, Dan Carlin model, Buck a show. It would be really helpful. Thank you.
2: Lastly, if you have been enjoying Reconsider please do leave us a review. It takes you 30 seconds and it helps us ascend the mysterious algorithm of podcast rankings. So go to iTunes or Google Play or ACAST or Overcast and please do leave us a review. We
1: would appreciate it. All right, onto the show. This will be our last econ episode. It is about national debt. And the reason it's about national debt is we've mentioned it a few times and people said, hey, is it like a problem that China owns a lot of our national debt? And our sovereign debt has ballooned a lot since mid 2000s. And are we are we totally doomed? And how much is sovereign debt like or not like personal debt? For example, should you constantly be running a giant credit card bill and just not paying it off? Because why not? So we have gotten all of these questions and more. So we finally decided to do an episode for all of you who are asking us about the national debt.
2: So let's just look at some key facts and info first is sort of context for digging into the meat, right? So sovereign debt is money borrowed by a country, by a sovereign. And there are a couple of different broad categories that we're going to be working with here. One is sovereign debt that is domestic and sovereign debt that is foreign. So domestic held sovereign debt is essentially debt issued by the government that's held by people within the US or entities within the US. So US banks, US individuals that you know want to leave as I don't know a treasury bond for their grandkid or something like that. They're also owned by large institutions that are seeking essentially risk-free or near risk-free investments like Social Security, insurance institutes, stuff like that. Foreign held debt is the same debt. It's issued by the U.S. government and it is held by entities or individuals that are outside of the US. So a lot of this is in fact held by the Chinese government, also a lot held by the Japanese government and the German government so on and so forth. There's also another term called external debt, which is actually different from foreign held debt. And we just want to clarify this in case you come across a term. External debt is just generally debt that is taken out by a government, except it is denominated in a currency other than that country's currency. So for example, Turkey, the country of Turkey has a lot of external debt. And instead of issuing debt in lira, they will essentially borrow in dollars or euros, which has implications for Turkey, but that's another episode the point of that, the reason that's important is that currencies fluctuate in value relative to one another. So sometimes there are risks you get when you borrow in currency that isn't your own. But essentially, we're not talking about external debt. We're talking about foreign held debt. With the US in this case, it's all issued in dollars and held by you know entities outside of the US.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
1: One of the other misconceptions we need to bring up about debt is that a lot of people say, oh, the U.S. is taking a loan and someone could call in that loan and they could say, hey, pay it all back. Like China could call it in and be like, hey, America, gotcha. And it turns out it doesn't work that way at all. What happens is the United States offers a bond such as a T-bill, which is the most common variety. And they say, hey, look, man, give us cash now. And the deal is we'll give you X cash back per month for the next 30 years. And it turns out you make money buying a T-bill, right, when the U.S. pays you back. So there's a percentage interest rate on that. But there's no opportunity for the holder of a T-bill or any other U.S. government bond to say, I want my money now. The government gets to say, "Uh, no, you don't get your money now. That's not how it works. So don't worry, nobody's going to be calling in U.S. debt. Uh, the other thing to think about is we'll often see the U.S. you know federal government debt as a really big number. It's like 21 billion or something somewhere later in the notes. I have it and you'll get it for reals. But... It's also worth noting that a lot of people also owe the United States a bunch of money. And so there's a difference between gross debt, which is everything we owe people, and net debt, which is everything we owe other people minus everything owed to the US government. Net debt is probably a better way of looking at the big picture.
2: Now, in the, in the case of China, it is worth mentioning that while they cannot call our debt, like a bank could call a loan that has reached maturity, they could let some of the debt that they hold mature and not reinvest because usually if you are a bond investor and you are managing your own portfolio, what you will do is constantly reinvest the money that's maturing. So if you have a 10-year bond that comes due, you can reinvest it so that you have essentially the same amount of capital that is continuing to be invested at any given time. So China could let some of those bonds or bills coming due mature and then just not reinvest the money. And often when people are talking about China, quote unquote, calling our debt, they're actually referring to this process and it's actually a fairly different process.
1: And we'll talk about it more later. Exactly.
2: So interest rates. Interest rates are the expense that you need to pay on debt that you take out. So the higher the interest rates on U.S. Treasuries, the more the U.S. needs to pay on its debt. Now, with the economy heating up as it has been, there is a growing... I mean interest rates are already going up, and there's an increasing probability that they're going to keep going up because the Federal Reserve says, okay, well, we don't want the economy to get overheated, so we're going to raise interest rates. This can have a bit of a ripple effect, right? Because if a greater portion of the federal budget needs to be allocated towards debt service because servicing that debt is more expensive because interest rates have gone up, then there's less money available to the federal government that can be spent on other programs such as social security, and welfare, and defense, and everything, right? So the the thing worth noting here is that there are kind of two broad categories from which the federal government So the thing to notice here, there are two broad categories of government spending. One is mandatory spending and the other is discretionary. Discretionary is like it sounds can be sort of adjusted on a year to year basis. The mandatory category um, more or less has expenditures locked in on a much longer term basis. So things like social security, it is far harder to adjust those than things within the, the discretionary budget. And defense spending falls within discretionary. So one of the Potential risks from growing debt service is less money to spend out of the discretionary category, which could impact defense and America's ability to project power
1: around the world. And, you know, we're talking a little bit about what could happen. We're not running into that problem yet. But if the United States takes on too large a debt burden, we could start to see actually geopolitical consequences around the globe. The other thing that can happen if the United States takes on too big a debt burden is a potential downward spiral. And we'll talk a little bit later about why this is actually less likely for the United States than almost any other economy. But that downward spiral looks like this. Let's say you have just gobs and gobs of debt and you therefore have a really high proportion of your budget going to debt service. Well, you still need to pay all those mandatory payments such as Social Security. And so what's happening is your taxes are going to pay debt service, and now you have a shortfall to be able to pay things like Social Security, so you take on more loans. And if you're taking on loans at a substantially faster rate than you are, one, paying the – not loans, sorry. If you are issuing debt at a substantially faster rate than you are, one, paying off that debt or servicing that debt, and two, increasing revenues through taxes and growth of the economy, then you start to reach a downward spiral where the percentage of your budget going towards debt service continues to grow. And as it continues to grow, you need to take more loans to pay off that debt service. You start to run into a lot of trouble. And so hopefully you can jack up taxes. But if, say, you're Greece and you're not really good at collecting taxes at all, and a lot of people get away with not paying your taxes, you're in a ton of trouble. But even if you are, you're still sort of praying that you can increase revenues or cut spending faster than you are taking on debt service. If you can't, you are in a lot of trouble. Now, I talked about how countries like Greece actually suffer from this more than the United States. And it is the case that the United States has substantially more freedom and flexibility than countries such as Greece because it controls its own monetary policy, that is, the supply of dollars and therefore interest rates. Greece is shackled on its monetary policy because the European Union determines how many euros are being printed anywhere. Um the united states instead can you know inflate away some of its debt by decreasing the value of the dollar printing a lot of dollars and making that debt relatively less expensive and you know that has its own consequences but it means that the us has some options to avoid that downward spiral that greece does not and to a degree this happens whenever there is positive inflation
2: and just in case it's not intuitive it's probably worth mentioning how one inflates their way out of debt so to speak if you have you know, gross oversimplification here. But if you have a million dollars circulating in an economy representing the underlying value of all goods and services in that economy, you know, that's the unit of account. There's a million dollars. Now if you just print an additional million dollars, there are now two million dollars underlying the same value of goods and services. So in effect, the value of each dollar has decreased by fifty percent. So if you owe a hundred thousand dollars a year in debt and next year you make the dollar 50% less valuable, then in terms of real value, you owe, in this theoretical example, 50% less from your debt. And this is something that, Eric, as you mentioned, Greece can't do because they cannot independently control the supply of euros in the euro
1: zone. Yeah, and they can't even seem to independently control the supply of taxes they're getting, but that's another problem altogether. And for those of you who might be affecting monetary policy in the near future, we are not necessarily advocating for 100% annual inflation rate. Don't take this too seriously. It's just an example. Now, so that's basically how U.S. you know government debt works. Most of it's owed domestically, some of it's owed overseas. And you might be asking, OK, so what percentage does China own? And therefore, kind of what level of power or influence might they have over the United States if, for example, they decided to let their loans mature? Well, China owns 19 percent of foreign held debt which, you know, not a small amount, but the total U.S. government debt that China owns is 5.6% because almost all U.S. government debt is actually domestically owned. And even if it was higher than 5.6%, there's limited danger in part because China owns that debt for a reason. And it's not because China is secretly trying to manipulate the United States. The reason that China takes on all this debt is there's actually two reasons. First, China actually wants to just have a safe reserve sitting around because, you know, the world is an unpredictable place and the United States dollar is pretty safe. But the second reason is that they actually want to keep the value of the yuan, their currency, low. And by owning U.S. government debt it actually and, and foreign reserves, which is different from debt, uh, China is able to keep the value of the yuan low against the U.S. dollar and therefore other currencies. And when the value of the yuan is relatively low, they can export more because it's cheaper for us to buy their stuff. And right now, China's export economy is 20% of their GDP, which is pretty high. And so if China were to let their U.S. government bonds mature, or if they were to sell them off or sell off their currency reserves, it would be a little bit tough on the United States. It would probably be a lot tougher on China, whose export economy would get into a lot of trouble. And most analysts believe that economic growth is the Chinese government's primary goal rather than, for example, spiting the United States for no particular reason. And therefore, it seems unlikely that China is going to make a drastic move with respect to its U.S. government debt.
2: And if you're kind of wondering how foreign currency reserves is related to owning foreign debt, the way it basically works is if you want to buy U.S. debt, it's denominated in U.S. currency. So first, you need to purchase U.S. dollars. So if you have a bunch of yuan sitting around and you want to buy U.S. government debt, first you need to use that yuan to buy dollars. And the greater the demand for dollars, the stronger the dollar becomes in relation to the yuan. So China essentially needs to accumulate this foreign currency reserve to purchase uh, or accumulate foreign currency in order to purchase debt and then that debt essentially acts, acts as its foreign currency reserve. And uh, US sovereign debt is not the only type of security that China owns in its foreign reserve basket. There there are other types of dollar denominated securities, but essentially China has had to purchase dollars first to buy all of those securities. So Ooh. yeah, I know, right? So now let's let's come back to the idea of size of debt. We've talked about sort of how you can own it, who can own it how much is there? Well, the answer is $21 trillion. Now, Eric, I don't know if you're like me. I, I don't actually think that I can fathom the concept of a trillion dollars or anything else.
1: Yeah. I, is there anything? I mean, you could with a trillion dollars, you could buy Apple, the company, right? You could buy the entire apparatus that is Apple and have enough money left over for, you know, a couple hundred yachts and like maybe a Greek island or something.
2: Right. And there's 21 of those. Now, that sounds like, and it is frankly a staggering number, but the thing to keep in mind is the size of that debt relative to the size of the economy. And US gross domestic product or GDP, which is one way of measuring the ongoing activity of the economy in any uh, given year, its debt to that GDP figure is about 103%. So US GDP is just a little under $21 trillion every year. And that is it's 103% debt to GDP, and that figure is by far the highest debt to GDP figure that the US has seen since World War II ended. There's a story to tell here. But over the uh, between the nineteen fifties and nineteen seventies, this figure, US uh, debt to GDP dropped. Taxes were higher, entitlement spending was lower in large part because there's just a larger uh workforce relative to non-working workforce ratio.
1: Yeah, and also there was just less of a safety net, like we didn't, you know, we didn't enter the great society, that included Medicare and welfare payments until the late 60s and even then they were pretty small. Then we introduced Medicaid. And so it's actually throughout the 70s that a lot of what we think of as entitlement spending that we're used to came online and wasn't at the level it was now. It has grown sort of per recipient over time.
2: So in the 1970s, debt to GDP began to come down, and it really peaked during World War II when the U.S. had to borrow a ton of money for the war, but its economy was so stimulated at the end of the war that it just kept humming and bringing debt down relative to economic activity. So it came down in the 70s and debt to GDP essentially bottomed out in 1980 at a little under 31%. Now, in the 1980s, the U.S. ramped up military spending as part of a concerted effort to bankrupt the Soviet Union. We figured that if we just spent so much money on the arms race, that the Soviets would also have to spend that much money in order to develop some sort of defense against all the new uh, missiles that we were d- developing, and it would, they would just go bankrupt. And, you know, arguably, it, it contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union.
1: Certainly, the Soviets felt like they needed to keep up with spending. So,
2: yeah. And during the same period, we also see we also saw taxes being cut, so debt went up relative to GDP, uh, up to about 64% by the end of the decade. Now, in the early 1990s, the economy was booming. Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton teamed up to bring debt back under control a little bit, because after all, they were running a government surplus for a couple years—a term that we have not really heard in a long time. Right? When we think, yeah, can about- you
1: freaking imagine? No. Oh my no. gosh! Some of our younger listeners will just like think of this as a fantasy, but it happened in 1999 and 2000. Yeah. And it hasn't really
2: happened since. But Gingrich and Clinton together worked on a program to cut spending and increase taxes. And this brought debt back under control a little bit, back to about 54% of GDP in 1999. In the early 2000s, we had the dot-com bust. Taxes were, again, cut to attempt to spur investment following the recession that was caused by the dot-com bubble burst. And then, of course, the U.S. wars in the Middle East began, which... Increased defense spending a lot, and this began to bring debt back up.
1: So in the in the Bush years, the debt GDP ratio hit sixty three percent, which is still pretty small co- compared to what we're used to. But it was during a, a boom, you know there was there was the real estate bubble that was driving a lot of the economy, and we were sort of set up to fail by two thousand eight. Two thousand eight, we had the Great Recession. And debt has since blown up to 103%. The rate of growth of debt to GDP ratio has gone down, but it does continue to grow. It is projected that debt as a percent of GDP will be higher next year. One of, the interesting, one of the interesting things about this story is that both Republican and Democratic-led Congresses and presidencies have been in charge when the debt increased and when the debt decreased. And it's also worth noting that jet-to-GDP ratio is sometimes an optimistic measure as it looks really good during an overheated economic bubble and looks like garbage during a recession when GDP shrunk but debt stays the same. Um, so, for example, you know, in 2008, debt GDP ratio looked pretty good. In 2000, it looked pretty good. But we were in the middle of these bubbles that were not sustainable. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that, hey, the folks in charge in 2000 and 2008 were geniuses and those in charge in 2001 and 2009 were terrible because it started going the different way. This is just how the business cycle
2: And I think this is kind of a a nice reconsider moment narrative buster, which is, you know, generally the Republican Party is, and this is a very traditionalist, recap of the two narratives, I guess. But the Republican Party is generally seen as this party of fiscal and financial conservatism and responsibility. And the Democrats are often seen as this party of big government spending and et cetera, et cetera. But it's just not really true. Both Republicans and Democrats have overseen periods where spending has increased dramatically. And both Republicans and Democrats have been in power when spending has actually been decreased and brought under control, such as with the surplus under Clinton. So this this
1: is just not an accurate narrative. I actually remember specifically, I was in Salt Lake City the other day for reasons. And uh, I saw an ad of Mitt Romney running for Senate actually sort of against the, uh, to sort of like bring back some of the old conservative ways, or at least the, the narrative of the old conservative ways. And just at the end, it said, Mitt Romney, deficit hawk. You know, like, huh. Yeah, it's just he's really clear about what he's doing or at least what he's what he's claiming. And, you know, when we when we look at the past 20 years, sort of so much has changed from what we saw in the post-war era that it's kind of hard to it's hard to compare the two. Right. Like entitlement spending per recipient has gone up dramatically. Taxes have been cut dramatically back in Eisenhower's time. You know, this was still after World War II, but the top top tax bracket which is marginal, of course, but the top tax bracket was 93 freaking percent, which is unimaginable now. And we've also had a lot of overseas wars, which have brought sort of some unexpected spending. What is interesting is that people talk about military spending, but as a percentage of GDP, spending on maintenance of the United States military is lower than it has ever been since before World War II, and it continues to drop. So as long as the United States is not getting involved in a lot of overseas wars, our spending as a percentage of GDP is as low as it's been in the modern era by a long shot and continues to go down. The big chunk that we're talking about today in 2018 is entitlement spending. Uh, That's the vast majority of what the U.S. is spending. And we also have much lower taxes now that we've had yet another tax cut in 2018 than we've ever had. And so that creates a huge imbalance And as baby boomers continue to retire, that social entitlement spending will continue to go up. And all projections right now by the Congressional Budget Office and et cetera, are that debt GDP ratio in the United States is going to continue to increase by a pretty substantial margin.
2: So then the question
1: arises naturally, how big of a problem is all
2: of this? And if you've listened to the rest of our episodes in the economic series that we've done, you've heard us uh, speak with Uh, Dr. Marin and John Swabich from the Urban Institute, and they identified sort of a handful of issues that could be most problematic. So the first being interest rates that are going up. As we mentioned, the Federal Reserve will gradually increase uh, short-term interest rates as the economy does better in order to keep inflation in check. At least that's the logic they're following. Now, as interest rates go up, more of the federal budget needs to be allocated to debt service which as we talked about before, essentially means less spending on other stuff, especially discretionary spending. Then there's the risk that the US hits another recession. And as of right now in early June 2018, it's been a pretty long time historically since the last recession started. It's been like 10 years and often recessions happen every eight to 10 years. So at some point, unless we are entering this remarkable period where we have escaped the business cycle, which has been a part of human affairs since forever, there's going to be another recession at some point. And if that happens with so much debt, the US will struggle to be able to spend a lot again in order to get itself out of that recession, which is essentially what the US did in 08, 09. When Bush was leaving office, he passed this fiscal stimulus plan. Actually, I don't know if he passed it or if he just said it in motion and it passed under Obama. Do you remember, Eric?
1: TARP was a Bush policy. So that was the sort of the bailout to try to keep a bunch of U.S. corporations from collapsing, which was a sort of a loan that got paid back. And then under Obama early on, there was the stimulus which was like a $900 billion package of like projects and tax temporary tax cuts and et cetera. That was uh, not alone, not designed to be paid back, but designed to in the Keynesian, general Keynesian model, which you heard Jake talk about last time, was designed to like sort of keep the bubble, like keep the downward spiral or the vicious cycle from continuing.
2: Sure. And um, if you've ever looked at a chart of federal deficit from like 08 to now, you'll see a huge spike in... 2009 2010 i think the deficit was over a trillion dollars then it's gradually decreased since then but essentially the the US will struggle to increase deficit spending so much because a lot of that is financed with debt because the debt level is so much higher now than it was in 2008 and you know at what point is t- is there too much debt is 150 50% debt to gdp ratio is that too high i mean japan's was really high at one point like getting close to 300% but they've stagnated for a long time. So, anyways, that's another constraint: is how much debt the U.S. government t- can take on to finance deficit spending in the event of another recession. Then there is sort of this effect that a lot of econ wonks refer to as deleveraging. But it's a combination of that and just saving more. So, when the last recession happened, everyone's like, you know, oh crap, what is this thing? I don't know how bad this is, how long can it could go on for. I better save some money. And spending went down. And one of the drivers of the US economy, of any economy, is consumer spending. How much consumers spend in an economy on anything services, goods, retail, healthcare, everything. And encouraging people to spend more helps the economy in a great, or at least helps increase GDP. And this isn't like a great summary sort of way, right? But if people have a lot of debt and things aren't going well, then people are gonna allocate more of their money to both savings and paying down debt or deleveraging, which limits the amount of consumer spending going
1: on in the economy. If we were to hit a recession tomorrow, the United States is much more constrained than it was in 2008 to be able to make both fiscal and monetary moves in order to try to help that recession, you know, resolve itself faster because it doesn't want to hit 160, 180 percent debt to GDP ratio, even though it's got a little bit more flexibility than some other countries. Now, I think one of the ways that we could talk about what is a lot of debt is to use some benchmarking. Um, so if you look at some other debt-ridden countries in 2016, here are a few examples. Japan is at a sovereign debt ratio of 236% of its GDP, which isn't even the highest it's had. This is absolutely bonkers and way bigger than anyone else. Greece, who has been in constant crisis mode for almost 10 years, uh, is at 192%. Lebanon, which is essentially war-torn you know, it's somewhat war-torn and, and dealing with a whole lot of refugees is at 152%. Yemen, which is totally war-torn, 141%. Italy and Portugal, which as Jake talked about in our last episode, are really hampered by their own labor laws and like just can't employ a a substantial part of their population, despite all efforts, are at 131 and 125 percent. And there's some small countries that are in between those. But you get the idea. Those are the big debt holders. And with the exception of Japan, all these countries aren't doing so well. Now, there are some countries with similar debt GDP ratios as the United States that are doing fine. Canada is at 98%. The United Kingdom is at 90%. And compared to much of the West, they're actually chugging along quite fine. So the U.S. doesn't yet seem to be a lost cause, although the entire world, as Jake talked about in the last episode, the entire world can go down at once. It's not just a relative thing like you're not. This is not a second slowest gazelle sort of dealio. <laughs> um, so we do want to limit the amount of you know total sovereign debt held by the entire world because at some point it gets unsustainable. The last thing I'll say on this is that as I was looking this up, I found the fun fact that the total government debt of the tiny nation of Brunei Darussalam is less than 3%. Wow, that would be cool.
2: The second slowest gazelle. You don't need to outrun the bear. You just need to outrun your friend.
1: Exactly. But this is a particular case where being the second slowest gazelle is not okay. Turns out everyone can lose just as hard. And I think the,
2: the thing to note from the list of countries that Eric just worked through is by no means is debt to GDP the only indicator of the relative success of a state. And I don't just mean economically, I mean all in, right? Because Yemen's debt to GDP relative to Japan's is only 140% compared to, you know, 200 and almost 240%. I would clearly prefer to be in Japan than Yemen. So it's just a reminder that debt to GDP is one metric of many that needs to be taken into consideration when you're evaluating the health of a country's economy and the country more generally as a whole. So all of these things considered the US still has a fair degree more amount of flexibility and tools to deal with its debts uh, to deal with its debt than a lot of these other countries do.
1: And this And in fact in specific if we look at similar nations that have really high debt to GDP ratios that are doing pretty well, Japan, Canada, and the United Kingdom, they have a little bit less than we do but they have a similar advantage. Yes.
2: So the US has compared to some of these other countries a fair amount more flexibility, and some tools to deal with his debt. And this is because there is a massive global demand for dollars that is unparalleled for other currencies. The dollar is still effectively the world's reserve currency. And it is the reserve currency of choice, not some imposed system that, I mean, the US benefits from it, but it's not imposed. It is something that individually millions of actors are making. They prefer to hold dollars compared to other currencies. Uh, the US also has the freedom, as we mentioned, to print more of its own currency. It has control of its monetary policy in the way that individual member states of the Eurozone don't. But the issue of the reserve currency is really, truly unique. And a lot of people have said, okay, well, yeah, but you know, the US is growing weak, and it's on decline, and people are going to start holding fewer dollars. That is a narrative that exists. But let's look at some numbers here. In terms of total reserve currencies held globally, the dollar accounts for nearly 63% of all of those currencies. So the vast majority. And if you look at the second most held reserve currency, it is not the yuan, it is the euro, which accounts for about 20% of global currencies. And next- Surely surely, it's the yuan after that. Surely, no. In fact, after that, it is the yen, (laughs) the Japanese yen at a little under 5%. And then finally, the pound sterling, not the yuan yet, at about 4.5%. And
1: Don't And worry, it's the yuan after that.
2: Certainly, it is. Actually, no, it's not. It's the Canadian dollar, which is about 2% of global reserve
1: currencies. Okay, but surely the Australians don't have more global reserve currency than the Chinese.
2: Surely, but actually they do at about 1.7%. And then actually, finally, all joking aside, we get to the Chinese yuan, which is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 in the list at about 1.2% of global reserve currencies held. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, maybe someday that'll change, but it's, it's just helpful to have that snapshot in mind as people talk about Chinese yuan overtaking the dollar as a more desired currency. And this kind of makes sense because you hold a currency in part based on the underlying strength of the economy. And, you know, while Chinese China's economy has been growing really in ways that are miraculous in the last uh, 30, 40 years, it still faces a lot more structural problems than the US. So- more individuals, more entities feel comfortable holding the dollar and dollar-denominated securities as less risky uh, in terms of a foreign reserve than the yuan.
1: All right. So on to the next question. Should we model sovereign debt like personal debt? No. But to elaborate, you know, one way of asking this question is, is it a really bad idea for the United States to not have a balanced budget in the way that for a family of six, it's just, you know potentially a really bad idea to just have ballooning credit card debt week to week? Turns out it's a very different story and there's some very different reasons. There's some very good reasons why we should think about sovereign debt as very different from personal debt. And both of those we should be thinking about differently than from corporate debt. Um, So what are some reasons why it's not disastrous to be holding on to large amounts of debt? Well, one, generally, over time, GDPs grow, whereas that may not necessarily be true for your, your income in relation to inflation. So GDPs grow. And so the burden of debt decreases over time. And guess what? The United States has as long as it needs to deal with this, as long as it doesn't run into a crisis. So for similar reasons, corporations will often... Debt finance projects, and it's very common to see healthy corporations have some debt. And the reason is, you know, it's worth the money you're spending on that debt if it helps you make more money later. And to what extent is the United States government investing in future GDP? Well, it's certainly supposed to do so by, for example, building infrastructure, handling education and healthcare, trying to get people out of poverty spending on national defense to, increase, to decrease the likelihood of global war or war on its own shores, uh, to keep sea routes open, uh, etc. Now, the United States government doesn't always necessarily spend its money efficiently. But certainly, if the U.S. government basically stopped spending money domestically right now, many of its investments would shrivel up and it would be bad for the U.S. GDP long term. Therefore, to some extent, US government spending is an investment in future health of GDP or at least in insurance against the GDP collapsing. Another reason why government debt is different from personal debt is that the United States has tools to make its debt less expensive and painful to pay off that families don't have. So the United States can print money. You cannot print money, dear listener. It's just not an option. Sorry. And then finally, what would uh, would the United States save total money if it didn't take on debt? And the answer is, in a way, yes, but it would require cutting spending or raising taxes, both of which it could have a negative impact on economic growth. So some economists have argued that there's a balance between debt and tax financing that you can strike. So what they mean is that you know if you purely finance your spending with taxes. You either have to increase taxes enough that it's going to hurt the economy or decrease spending enough that it's going to hurt the economy. And therefore, it may make sense to take on some debt at a good rate, which the United States has gotten until recently, or at least gotten recently, um, rather than increase spending or or increase taxes or decrease spending. And that's there's this like sort of optimal mix of how you finance your spending. That includes a little bit of debt all the time. Uh, is it possible to figure out this optimal? Probably not right now. Maybe you know, IBM's Watson will figure it out someday uh, or like Watson 8.0 in the year 2500. But for the moment, uh, there's a lot of guessing, a lot of blindness, but there's a case to be made that debt is a good thing.
2: And will be there's one more example of how sovereign debt and sovereign finances are different from like a personal checkbook that I'll throw out there. It's essentially the problem of only having so many choices. The there's 21 trillion dollars in in U.S. debt, and all other countries have a smaller uh, total n- total debt figure. So the amount of that debt creates a, c- a certain size market that other countries and other investors want because it's access to risk free investments. Um, there's also as I mentioned, relative strength of the U.S. economy compared to other countries, and some of the political issues that they're facing, and that means if you are a debt investor seeking a low-risk investment, there's only so many choices in terms of availability of securities that you can buy—just total dollar amount, or total yuan amount, or total euro amount. Euro amount, and um, you have to balance the risk of that low-risk investment relative to other potential low risk sovereign investments and there's only you know 200 countries around the world so there's only so many choices whereas if you are a debt investor of you know, you're buying corporate debt or you're buying securitized debt of thousands of homeowners who you know, they've taken all of those individual mortgages and put it into one security, you have a lot more options. And that flexibility means that that market in a way is more competitive than the market for sovereign debt because there's only so many options. And right now, you know, your top options are not a list of 200 countries, but more like a list of like 20 or 30 countries. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about debt to GDP. And that is usually what people will talk about when they talk about national debt. But there are different ways to think about the total debt burden that a country has at any given time. So while we just went through this whole section about how individual finances don't map perfectly as analogies onto national finances, there are some metrics that are used to gauge credit risk in the world of personal and corporate finance that are still useful and practical when you're looking at sovereign wealth, and they're often not used. So we mentioned that debt to GDP, GDP is the essentially the total amount of sales that happen in an entire economy in any given year or any given period. So it, it, debt to GDP, therefore, is a measurement of debt relative to economic productivity or revenue generated in a given period and that generated revenue is the US's tax base. However, if you are in the world of corporate finance or individual finance, the indebtedness is not measured only relative to annual income, even though that is one of the most important metrics. If you go to a bank, the bank's going to say, okay, what's your income? But also, how much wealth do you have right now? How much money do you have in your bank account? Uh, So if you want to take out a $50,000 loan, and you only make $25,000 a year, your debt to income might be 200%, which looks like not a great loan for the bank because how are they ever going to pay that debt back? But if you happen to have $10 million in the bank, then having a 200% debt to income metric matters less because your debt to net wealth is very, very low and
1: your wealth completely covers the debt. So the equivalent for a country Assets would be the idea of the net wealth of the country, which is the total wealth owned by all entities in a country, real estate, bank accounts, etc., etc., etc. And one of the reasons this is a far more difficult measure to make is that you have to deal with valuation uncertainties in things such as real estate, the price of which only becomes known when the property is sold, right? Because the only true way of determining how much the market would pay for something is when they actually pay. Everything beyond that is just wishful thinking. And so in addition to debt GDP ratio, another way to measure the sovereign indebtedness is the debt to net wealth ratio to understand the amount of debt relative to the total value controlled in a country's economy. Uh, however, you know there's a big difference between However, here again, uh, there's a big difference between individual finance and sovereign finance. In this case, it's actually in, in favor of the individual. So the individual with 10 million in their bank uh, has total control over that and therefore can easily decide to repay their loan with the bank account if they want to. For the government to raise taxes to be able to pay debt, which is you know how it draws upon the wealth of the country it governs, you know it requires bills passed by Congress and all the you know normal legislative inertia that you'd face when you try to pass any other bill. So if it's going to go after the wealth held by people as opposed to just their income, we need a new way of taxing which requires you know a, a new law which is going to be very hard to pass. But arguably if it became dire enough, the wealth is nevertheless there, but it's not nearly as quickly or easily accessed that as that of the individual. And so there's an additional problem with this, and it's that, you know, raising tax revenues from a country's net wealth means drawing upon things like real estate, capital gains, generated transactions, and so forth. And, you know, this is actually going to cause the net wealth to degrade in a way that when you're only taxing income, you're just kind of shaving off stuff that's new this year. And you know, large holders of real estate and corporate securities who would be facing taxes on their their static wealth, they arguably, the, you know, these folks have arguably far more power to fight back against the government than the average person whose income is being taxed. So drawing upon that net wealth is like, it's not impossible, but it's also not going to be easy. And if there's a crisis, it may take a long time.
2: Okay. So let's step back for a couple of reconsider moments, which we like to have at the end of these episodes, because that's the whole point of the show history shows us that ballooning sovereign debt is not infinitely sustainable. It gets harder, more expensive to service as that debt grows, and your options basically begin to shrink as it gets bigger and bigger. Uh, And, you know, defaulting sucks, so it's not a recommended outcome generally because it just makes it extraordinarily difficult for that country to borrow again after getting out of its default or moving past its default. Look at Argentina. However, some of the concerns that are typically addressed towards the national debt and some of the, the common narratives that you hear use analogies or conceptions about, about national debt that don't always make sense. They're, they use analogies that don't always map perfectly on to notions of sovereign finance from concepts of personal finance. So it's, it's hard to make a good analogy for a lot of these sovereign debt concepts because sovereign debt ultimately operates very different From individual and corporate debt, which are things that individuals more likely than not have more personal experience with than national debt. And then not all debt is built the same. There is domestic debt, which the majority of U.S. debt is held domestically. And then there is foreign debt, debt held abroad.
1: even if we're talking about foreign debt, that the way we need to think about or be careful about or deal with foreign debt isn't the same between different countries. There are countries that, you know, are very much in charge of their own mints and their own monetary policy. They have more flexibility. And it turns out when you're the top reserve currency in the world, you have a lot more options. And so, you know, we look at some of these differences and we say, look, Greece is at 192% debt to GDP ratio. And it's it's you know, constantly on the verge of collapse. And Japan, which is at 240%, seems to be doing okay, you know, and not too far behind, you know, and, and you know, just so just looking at that number doesn't necessarily tell you how much trouble a country's in or how much difficulty they're going to be having and paying it back. And so at the end of the day, this stuff is complicated. You know, we don't have the answers for you necessarily about, you know, when is there going to be trouble and and how much debt is a problem and what does the future hold? And we can't even really recommend to you what the Fed or Congress should do next. And, you know, even if we did, we wouldn't tell you our opinion on it because we don't want to do the thinking for you. So hopefully this has helped you learn a little bit more about how the United States and other countries need to be thinking about their sovereign debt and next time we will be moving on to foreign policy. You know, there's a couple countries we want to touch on and, you know, a couple big shakeups going on that we want to take. We'll decide what gets published next soon. So with that,
2: we're, we're done with the episode on national debt. But since this is the last episode in a series of economics that we've been doing essentially for the first half of 2018, I just want to take a moment to recap all of the other ones that we've done in case you haven't hit on them and you want to go back and visit. Uh, because they haven't all come out in a series and we've interjected some other episodes here and there that aren't economics. But we started with an episode on Fiat currency and money supply. It was called Money from Nothing and Your Chits for Free. The next one we did was on the gold standard and how it ended in the US and some of the implications for reinstituting a gold standard in the US, what those could be. We then had a number of really great interviews, the first of which was on the Fundamentals Monetary Policy with Dr. Marin of the Urban Institute. And then also from the Urban Institute, we chatted with John Swabish and took some time breaking down the GOP tax bill that passed earlier in the year, or I guess actually it was late last year. The next episode after that was the Austrian take on the boom and bust cycle, which looked at how Austrian economics, the Austrian school of thought, addresses the business cycle in ways that are unique from other, maybe you can call them orthodox schools of economic thought. And then we, because we are reconsider and we want to present all the different sides to an issue, did an episode called A Retort to the Austrians. So some of the criticisms from non-Austrian schools on the Austrian school and some other ways of looking at the Great Depression, the Great Recession, how business cycles work. And that was with Jake Meyer from uh, Cal State Long Beach, an economist from Cal State Long Beach. This is one on national debt. And if you're interested in listening to the series, go back and check those out.
1: Wow, it's been quite a ride. So as always, dear listeners, don't let the pundits do their thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off.
2: This is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time for No More Economics. Woo!